mi gente, welcome to Peruvians of USA, the podcast where we share the diversity of the Peruvian immigrant experience. This is your host, Natalie Sofia, and this community was born from the need to create a space for Peruvian immigrants to come together, to support each other, to learn from each other, and to document our stories. The stories our guests share with us are deeply personal and paint a new portrait of what it means to be a Peruvian immigrant. I hope you receive these stories with an open heart and an open mind. So let's get started. This episode is brought to you by Alpha Foods. Having a morning routine can increase your energy, productivity, and positivity. My morning routine includes journaling and making myself a flavorful cup of Peruvian coffee. Alpha Foods signature coffee comes all the way from the rich soil of Peru with full flavor, smooth medium body, and a delicate sweet completion. Alpha Foods organic Peruvian coffee is sustainably and ethically sourced. Visit alpafoods.com to purchase your Peruvian organic coffee and other Peruvian superfoods such as maca and cacao powder, and coming soon, lugma powder and quinoa. Enjoy the exceptional taste of Alpha Foods organic Peruvian coffee while supporting a Peruvian owned business. If something resonates with you while enjoying our conversation, please be sure to share with us in social media using the hashtag Peruvians of USA. All right, here's our conversation. Welcome, Josie Salgado, to Peruvians of USA. I am thrilled to have you here today. Please introduce yourself. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. My name is Joyce Salgado, and I'm a licensed mental counselor in New York. I run in I Plancado Psychotherapy, and it's my private practice in which I focus more on working with communities that come from an immigrant background. So that just means someone that is a first-generation immigrant, children of immigrants, people who are coming to the U.S. for school or temporarily for, for businesses or for just a, a temporary time. I'm really excited to really provide that service for not only my Peruvian community, but Latinx, Hispanic communities, communities outside of the U.S., um, and of course, including communities within here in the U.S. So excited to, to be here and have this conversation. Congratulations on starting your private practice. That's such an amazing accomplishment. I know my best friend's also a therapist and she started in so much work. <laughs> There's so much work behind the scenes. So props to you for that. I'd like to give the audience a little bit of a background of how you and I met. You participated in Peruvian Sisters series. I think it was called Poderosa. And I heard you in, in that series and I thought it was fantastic. And as I mentioned to you offline or before we started recording, my one of my goals for 2021 was to get a therapist. And so when I saw that you were a therapist, you're Peruvian, you have the immigrant background and you have that specialty and that focus. I was like, yes, let me talk to her. And so I tried to set up time. And we did. <laughs> and we did. And so you can, you can continue this, you can continue the story. Like, so I did reach out, we did connect it, but it didn't work out. <laughs> I'll share why. So something that we're talking about a little bit before was that sometimes it's not that you don't find the therapist that you're, that you're wanting. There's other things outside of your control. So, for example, with with us, it was that I was not licensed in the state that you were living at that time. And although I started the process and I wanted to get licensed in that in that state, things happened from your end and you moved to a different state. <laughs> so, you know, just things happen. But something that you were mentioning, which was that 
you were talking to, I think, uh, uh, another organization that matches you with, with therapists. Yeah. Um, so she's kind of like a matchmaker. She's kind of like a matchmaker between clients and therapists. She's based off Atlanta. And I reached out, I gave her sort of my requirements of what I'm looking for. And I was looking for a female therapist with an immigrant background. Didn't have to be Latina, but I did want that immigrant background because so many of the conversations I want to have revolve around that experience. And, you know, she got back to me and she's just said like, look, I'm really trying to find you someone, but there's just not a lot of brown and black therapists out there with immigrant experience. And, and the ones that aren't are just so, solid book, you know, so. Yeah. So I don't have the percentages on the top of my head, but the majority within the mental health psychology field, the majority of providers are, are white education in, in, there's a, a low percentage of black, brown therapists, indigenous therapists. So it, it gets pretty hard to then find that specialty and specialists, you know, therapists that come from that background or therapists that provide services specifically be open to the unique experiences that, that each of our communities have, you know? So yeah, it gets pretty, pretty tough to, to find. Yeah. And, and so I also wanted to share this with the audience because as I mentioned, like my, one of my goals for 2021 was to find a therapist and I did try, unfortunately, I, I didn't find someone that you know, kind of was a good fit. It is like dating. You have to sort of try different people and see what sort of fits. But I guess, Joyce, like, would you then recommend to our community that, you know, maybe try a Caucasian person or like really look for somebody who matches more of what you want? I guess I, I would want people to get the help they need. But at the same time, like, you know, I think there's certain things that can be taught in a classroom or you just really need somebody to have that understanding. So you're not starting, you're not explaining yourself as to why this is important to you. Like for us, family is so important, perhaps to somebody who is more Americanized could be like, you know what, just go visit your family twice a year. It'll be okay. And I'm like, no, that, that won't be okay. <laughs> so what, what would your advice be? So there's so many different factors that come into play. So for example, if, starting off from directories, right? You can go on Google, you can search for directories, you can type in looking for therapists, psychotherapists, mental health counselors, psychologists in whatever area, and you will get a lot of directories. Now, what sometimes happens is that in those directories, you might not really see that you might not recognize that you might match with, with a specific therapist. So let's take you, right? You're looking for a therapist that is, that has an immigrant, immigrant background or provides services for that population, right? There might be therapists that already provide that, but on the profile in their, in the directories, they might not say that. So they're already your therapist pool gets shortened because if you're looking for that, you might not see that. So some directories, for example, like psychology today, from what I have seen, I am not a member of psychology today, but from what I have seen, they don't really specify the therapist lived experience or a little bit more about the therapist. So if you're in psychology today, for example, and I imagine there's other directories similar, 
if you're looking for that specific thing, you might not really see it. You might just have to go by maybe the the, the therapist's picture, maybe the therapist's general profile that they have and just do a consultation. And then in that consultation, you can ask more questions. In a consultation, it's not only for the therapist to see if they are providing the services that you are looking for, but it's also for you to see, is this a good match? Do I feel good just having this brief consultation with this therapist? And again, you can ask all of, the, all of those questions. Now, there, there are a lot of other directories that specified more information about the therapist. For example, one of those is, and those I am a member of, is the lattherapy.com. And then it's inclusivetherapist.com. So those two, if you're looking for that specific, even when you're searching in their website, you can look for that. You can look for that Peruvian therapist. You can look for that therapist that works with first generation immigrants or that are that work with children of immigrants. So it really, there's a lot of factors. My best, best suggestion is if you're starting off on Google, because you might not know all of these directories, what, what starts coming up, just go with your gut. Even if it's a picture that you like and you say, wow, this therapist looks friendly, regardless of Regardless of what you might be looking at, looking for, let me reframe that actually, not regardless of what you're looking for, but keeping in mind what you're looking for. And if it somewhat matches with that picture, with that general profile, ask for a consultation. You really don't lose anything for that 10, 15 minute conversation where you can ask a lot of questions, more clarifying questions, and then you can see if you, you match. I'm saying all of that. But I also understand that as a client, looking for a therapist is pretty overwhelming and it's pretty, it could be nerve wracking. It could be time consuming, but then you also have to think about it. Is it worth it? Right. Is it worth the, the time and the work that I'm putting a little bit to then match the therapist that I will feel comfortable with and start my mental health journey and exploration? Yeah, no, I think that's great advice. Definitely trying to at least get to that consultation, you know, sort of just get the consultation done, see what your gut reaction tells you. And the director is that you mentioned were latinxtherapy.com and inclusivetherapy.com, which I will link in the episode notes. But yeah, I didn't mean to jump so quickly into like, hey, help us out <laughs> the right therapist. We definitely want to get to know you and your um, background. It's my understanding that you were born in Peru and you came here as a kid and you have indigenous background as well. And then there were some sort of struggles assimilating and sort of keeping both identities or, or trying to maintain multiple identities, you know, as many, many of us struggle when we come here. Or what are we? What do we want to be? So tell us about your life in Peru. What was your life in Peru like? So yes, you're right. I was born in Pampas de Yacaja, Huancavelica, Peru. So it's a very small town in the Andes. I think an hour, an hour and a half from Huancayo, like eight. In my time, 13 hour bus ride from Lima to my town. So it was such an amazing childhood. Amazing. And also now as an adult, recognizing that a lot of a lot of abandonment, maybe issues or struggles, 
I can see that it might have started there because my mother came to the U.S. when I was two to three years old. And then I stayed to live with my grandparents. So I live with my grandparents, my aunts, my uncles. As you know, in Peru, everyone is your uncle. Everyone is your aunt. Just family just grows, you know? So a really, really nice community over there. And it was a very free childhood. I think at nine years old, I was eating ceviche at the local restaurant with my friends on a Sunday after church. Right? So, and then people just knew who you, people knew who you were or which family you belonged to. And yeah, it was just really, really nice. And so you can imagine the shock and the culture shock, right? Coming here to the U.S. So I came here to the U.S. to stay to live at 11 years old. But I was coming here to the U.S. on vacation from when I was five to 11. My, my mother was a single, a single parent at that time. And when I came here for the first time at five years old, the intention was for me to stay here and, and stay with her. And although we had also a community, my, so my own uncles and aunts were here, it was a little bit difficult with the language, with homework, mom is working, who, who takes care of me after she goes to work. All of these things came into play. So it was decided then that I would go back to Peru with my, with my grandparents and study in Peru. So I would study in Peru and then vacation maybe a month or two here in the U.S. Different, different culture. Right. So staying here and living here, I, it wasn't free anymore. There was a lot of fears. I can't go to the park by myself. Can't ride a bike by myself. We don't know people, you know, so although there was that small community, it was also new for my mother at that time who had, when I was already here at 11, she had met my, my stepdad, who I consider my father as well. He is a Colombian man. Um, so. Already you can see there's different factors and different things and different experience. And something that I, that I always keep in mind, not only in my personal life, but also in my practice is that really everyone has so many, so much complexity in their life. And just because you are, or consider yourself to be a Peruvian person, I don't come in thinking, okay, I, I already know your life. Like I leave the door open to, to understanding and exploring with you what, what, what is your intersectionality, right? Because without understanding that there's complexity and there's a lot of nexus that connect you to different things, I cannot see you fully. So in, in my lived experience, again, you can already see that. There were so many cultures already getting involved at 11 years old when I was here. And uh, something that I usually do speak about is identity because I grew up in a small town in Peru. And in Peru, I had experienced discrimination as a person that is from Provincia, right? From like a small town, from grandparents and even myself when I was younger, speaking Quechua or understanding Quechua and having connections with with other, other people who worked on the land. My grandfather had a potato crop and we would exchange things with the local stores, markets. So all of that, whenever I would come to the U.S. for vacation, I would encounter people from Peru who would discriminate against the way I would speak and the way I looked. 
And so already having that as a basis, then coming to the U.S., then I was no longer Peruvian. I was Mexican, right? And nothing wrong with being Mexican. It was just like, wait, hold on. No, I am from Peru. I'm representing Peru. But again, 11, 12 years old, I don't think even though our cognition is already developed, you really don't consider the magnitude of what the experiences do for your identity and having my 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 other parent figure being Colombian also it you know accepting and integrating Colombian culture holidays things like that so for me it was you know it was great because there was a lot of cultures but also pretty overwhelming because then who who am I am I you know, la, la, la chola de, de pampas, <laughs> you know, la, la cholita de pampas, eh, soy una persona que habla quechua o, o vengo de, de esas raíces, or am I Miss Peru, <laughs> right? So who am I? So a lot of struggles there. And it just, as, as I was an adolescent and then a young adult, different things came into play. And it wasn't, I think, until I was probably getting closer to my master's program and in my master's program where I really had to do a radical exploration of myself and really get to know myself more and fully. Of course, prior to that, when I was in high school and, and then maybe a little bit before, a little bit after, there were there were these these questions, but also an understanding that, yeah, I am for free. Like this is this is my culture. I love that. I love the food. I love the family. I love, you know, speaking to my family, enjoying time with my family. So there was that, but I don't think it was to the extent of understanding that I had once I dived into more into the mental health field and had to do my own exploration and also doing it through therapy. So I'll, I, I'm a mouthful, I think, but that's kind of like the gist. No, I think it's great that you you brought in that there's so much complexity to everybody. Nobody is just one thing. Even if you define yourself as 100% Peruvian, there's more to you than, than that, mm -hmm. right? And there's a lot of intersectionality, particularly for us immigrants who are here in the U.S. We're exposed to so many cultures, you know, just through Peruvians of USA. I met people from other platforms who grew up in a Caribbean neighborhood and they have that Caribbean influence, right? And so, yes. and then others who grew up in a more, like there were, it was more Caucasian and have, they have in the, in the South and they have that influence. And so I think the key or what I've tried, the message, what I try to keep in this platform is that um, you are the only one who can define yourself. Like I can't tell you how Peruvian you are or you're not. It's really up to you how you define yourself. So I think that's such a great message. One thing that came up as you were sharing your story of like how you process your own identity was how did you keep in touch with Peru after you came here to stay uh, in a more permanent basis? And I asked because like that was one of the areas where there's still some sort of pain for me because I went through a period of, so I came and then I got super disconnected from my family in Peru. And this was in the 90s. So it was a lot more difficult to call Peru, a lot more expensive to call them and stay in touch. And now it's a lot easier, but now there's that, that chasm that of like, can they really understand my life here? Can I really understand their life there? 
can we talk about something besides like the surface level conversations of como están, como está la familia, la salud, you know? And so how have you navigated that? So when I first came to the U.S., actually, I have vague memories, but my mother and my uncles that lived here when I came first when I was five, six years old, when I was mentioning that I would, the intention was for me to stay to live, but it just did not happen like that. They mentioned to me that I think at the month mark, I was packing my bag to go back to, you know, I miss my friends, I miss like the life. So I guess that might have been it. But yeah, I just wanted to, to, to share that anecdote because I just think it's so funny that my inner child probably, my, you know, me as a, as a five, six years old, wanted to go back, <laughs> wanted to, to continue the connection. Um, then when I came, when I was 11 to live here, the way that I would connect, so I, I mentioned that I already had a small community here in, in the U.S. Some of my, my uncles and some aunts and extended family lived here already. So on a day-to-day -day basis, the way that I continued that connection was through, through food, through, through speaking in Spanish and more so through speaking and throwing some words in Quechua that, you know, that that's how we grew up in my town. My grandparents speak fluent Quechua and Spanish as well. So we did have a lot of connections to that. And so my parents, my, my mom, especially she, she did as well. So I'm 11 years old, you know, some, some connections to that language as well. It is unfortunate though, because I think the more you speak a different language and don't practice the other, you start losing the other. So it's, it, it's pretty sad to, to sit here now as a 32 year old. And I just remember some work and don't, I, I would not be able to keep a conversation. So it's, it's really sad because there's that grieving part of like losing that, that language, but also the intention of learning more of that language. So language was one, food was one and holidays, just celebrating holidays. So my family has made it an intention to try to go there at least every year for those festivities. And for us, there's many ones throughout the year, but the one that my family tries to go to mainly is one that is in January. And they actually call it, they call it the Enero because the main event is it's the 20th in January. And it's to celebrate Virgin Mary. And, and although it's, a, it's sort of like a Catholic it is a Catholic ritual and, and festivity. They have turned it into more of a community and a, a town holiday. So throughout the years, that was one way. But I gotta say, I, I really do think though, as life continues on, you might not have all of those connections because remember that as a person that's coming to a new culture, you also sort of have to integrate some of the new culture, right? And I speak about acculturation a lot because it, it's the merging of the two, not assimilation necessarily, because I really do think assimilation has been weaponized historically. And I, I think back with, for example, with Native Americans and boarding schools that, that were present to assimilate them into a new culture, which really meant losing their identity, which really meant losing the language, losing those connections. And 
assimilation as a word, as a term, just kind of does not sit well. But I think acculturation is one term that we can use to understand the, the merging of the two cultures as, as, as you please, as a person, for example, right? I can incorporate some of this, some of that, this I could leave out, but it, it's a marriage of those two things because as people who have an immigrant background, you, you do deserve to marry all of those things. Like we were talking a little bit ago about complexity. It is important, you know, to understand complexity and to then be okay in accepting our complexities to marriage the two different cultures. And, and something that you pointed out before was sometimes it's not just two. Sometimes it's a multitude of cultures because of the region that we live in. You know, for example, in New York, yeah. I mean, my friends vary from people coming from India to Dominican Republic, to Colombia, to also Peru, to China, to Russia, you know, so it's just so many cultures and so much influence, I gotta say. That's really interesting because I do think assimilation, it, it is rooted in like letting go of your old culture, your old language, and, and just take in the new one. And I think having that marriage of the two, it's better. But I also think it's up to the host country, in this case, the U.S., to also see this new culture and say like, hey, what can we take from this culture as well? It's not just us taking the American culture, but them taking some of our culture as well. But I also think that attitudes of assimilation come because previous immigrants, you know, I'm thinking like 1800s, 1700s, 1600s, they didn't have the luxury to connect as frequently to their culture as we do now with technology and being able to travel, you know, and going back to that motherland. So in, in, in a way, they were also forced to let go of those, let go of their old culture. And so they just kind of stay with that mentality, you know, and, yeah. and, but like we live in new times, new era. So completely, completely hear that. Yes. Forced to, or really had to, right? There was no other way to, to succeed, to survive. So yeah. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. All right. So I want the audience to also learn a little bit about your educational and professional background. You, and I want to connect it to your, you know, your immigrant story, because you did mention that, you know, having your mom come here when you were little and you stay with your grandparents in Peru, that kind of touched on fear of abandonment. And I think all of us have fear of abandonment for some, all of us have some sort of experience where one parent left or, you know, both of them did. My story is that my dad came here first and then my mom, and then I was left with my grandmother and I was the last one for my family to come. So being also the last one is kind of like, <laughs> why am I the last? And then they tell you because you're the oldest and we can touch on this later because you're the oldest and you're the strongest one. Thanks. I'm a yeah. child. <laughs> I'm, here. I'm eight years old. Please, please stop. <laughs> right. But yeah, so tell us what led you to become a therapist. I think I always have to start with saying so many factors because it's true. There's so many factors, so, so much, so many influences. So yeah, I think I really do think, and I, I was asked this before too, I really think I knew that I wanted to do something within like the healing, helping, some, some helping field, because since I was younger, since 
I have memory in my town. Yeah, like I, I, I really just love community, wanting to just do so, so much with, with people, understand people and understand why they might be sad, why they might be happy and just really curious about each person. And I think like a lot of people too, I, I was very observant and intuitive. A little bit of background, my grandfather also in, in my family, aside from having the potato crops, to this day, we also have a, I guess you could call it a funeral poem. They make the coffin. The wood, like they would make the the designs and everything else and then sell the coffin. So just, I think that I had to add that because people would come looking for coffins, family, crying, devastated for what had happened. And that was part of the norm when I was growing up, you know, just, I, I knew people would come to look for that. And, and so sadness was part of, I think my life, like understand, trying to understand that as a child looking at people and in my town, and I think in Peru and many, many other countries, you also, it would not be algo raro to see five, six, seven, eight year old working in the street, you know, selling candy or or los zapatos. Right? I sold I sold marcianos, by the way, when I was there. So yeah, I sold marcianos in el mercadito de Pamplona. Wow, that's awesome. That's really awesome. Right. So yeah. So you see, like it. It's not a value. Rat. I can't even say. It. That's why I say in Spanish. No raro to see that. So when I was growing up in Peru, in my town, looking at that. Although it was, it wasn't something that was rare and it was common and it was almost so normalized. It did feel like, Hey, like that's so-and-so from my class. And he's, you know, I, I see him doing those things and it wasn't, it, it was more of like, huh, that's interesting. Again, as a eight year old, right. Thinking, Hmm, this is, this is interesting. I'm curious to know what's going on in that person. So throughout my high school career, college career, I cannot say that I knew, okay, I'm going to be in psychology. All right. I'm going to be in the mental health field. No, things just sort of happen, happen with intention, of course. So when I was in, in high school, I did, I was curious about psychology and I had, uh, I took an APA, a AP class, which is like a college credit class in high school, I did very bad. So I was like, okay, psychology does not seem like it's my friend. So I don't know. Then because I also wasn't sure of what, what to study, sort of wanted to do psychology, but looking at, at how I did it, APA or AP class, I was like, I don't think this is it. So I started at a community, a community college on LaGuardia, and it was because of not knowing specifically what I wanted, but I did want to go to college. I, I didn't enjoy school and also because I thought, okay, to pay a lot of money for higher, higher education, higher institution, it just didn't feel feel good. I was the, the first in my immediate family to go to college here in the U.S. And so also navigating those systems, I, I didn't even know what the SATs were until I think my junior or even senior year in high school. 
I, I didn't even, we didn't even know. My parents didn't even know. And it's not for, for really just the simple fact that they really also didn't know. They were very involved in, in my schooling and, and all of it, but there were so many factors is, is what I'm trying to get at. So then I went to, to a community college, LaGuardia, and I started with business, business administration. And then when we got to accounting, that was not great. <laughs> that was really hard for me. So I was like, okay, maybe psychology is calling my name. And so it just kind of certain things as, as I'm mentioning, just sort of happened. And in LaGuardia, I did have, I think it was like a class, but more so of a class. It was more of like career exploration. It was very, very therapeutic. The professor, I, I, I forgot, but it was a really therapeutic space where we really had to explore what is the life that we're wanting to build? What is it? that calls on to us and with doing that exploration I was like at least psychology is is what I would want to do I could see myself having conversations talking one-on-one being able to to connect with people on not on a deeper level one-on-one and in that in the grand scheme of things I would want that to then help again in the grand scheme of things to help the world in a way as cliche as that sounds, I really do believe that the work that therapists do and, and many other people in different fields, it really affects, affects the world, you know? So in, in my field, that's what I wanted to do. And then I transferred to Baruch. I also did go in with industrial and organizational psychology as a major because I, I, I like the business part of things. I also like psychology, so I was like, okay, this sounds like it's a good marriage of, of the two things that I like, but that was horrible. Again, I think I had to take, take calculus and I was like, math, math just kind of gets a little hard for me. So I changed it to general psychology. And then after my bachelor's, I started working as a vocational counselor. And that's where I started seeing fully people who were struggling with depression, schizophrenia, anxieties, traumas, and how that affect, affected their, their careers, how that affected their vocation or the things that they wanted to do, but they couldn't. And, you know, after that, that work that I did, I recognized that I really wanted to go deeper and not keep it on the surface because the work that I was doing, it was connecting those people to, to organizations and jobs that will give them the opportunity to, to sort of like start slow and getting the hang of the role that they were hired to do. But in a way that sort of felt surface level, I wanted to go, to go deeper. And then I made the decision to go get my master's. It was pretty hard because at that time I was already, I believe, 25, 26. And, you know, some, some pressures that come, I think from sometimes our families, we can say society is certain things being done at a certain age. And so I never felt pressure with anything else as to, you know, milestone, milestones with marrying someone or all of those things. But with career, yeah, it did feel like I was behind. 
And I was like, okay, do I even go to get my master's? What What's going on here? And, you know, it, I think it's in those moments that we also have to accept that and understand, because it is true that everyone goes at their pace. And what is your pace is not my pace. And it goes, and all of those things tie into we really are unique and we really are different. And our stories are different and beautiful, right? So 25 years old, I was like, at this, what is going on? I need to also honor myself. And so, yeah, I, I went in and got my master's from Brooklyn College. And it was, I gotta say, it, it was life-changing because I did my own exploration. It was scary. Uh, but I did my own exploration through that training as well and understood a lot about myself. And that continues to this day, of course, but like that was really eye-opening and, and understanding kind of like the behind the scenes of a mental health counselor, a psychologist, and you really having to do the work to then be able to provide the space to the clients that come in, you know, so yeah. It, yeah, no, that's, I mean, like, I echo your message about, like, you don't have to achieve a certain milestone by a particular age. I know there could be pressure, not only from a career perspective for many of us, but also from a family perspective. Like, mm -hmm. I definitely heard, like, el 13 te va a ir a los 25, like, you should be a mother already by 25. Fortunately, <laughs> fortunately, also, my parents have not put that pressure on me. Uh -huh. um, and I chose to go back to grad school or to go back to school to get my master's in my 30, like when I was 30 ish. And so, yeah. So, I mean, I, it's funny to hear you say like, oh, 25. And I was like, no, oh, no, no, no. I had one when I was 30, you know, and like I was in a trajectory in my career where I was like, well, I could continue this, but it's not fulfilling or it's not as challenging me as much as I would like it to be like. And sometimes you need that break and that's, that's fine. Right. Like, For like sure. it's an expensive break, but, <laughs> but it does challenge you and open your mind in other ways. And you do meet people who just like run your world in so many ways. Right. So, so I think it's amazing that you decided to start your own practice. What gave you, I mean, just to say, to say, we don't previously say this, but Los Cojones, I know I see here, I <laughs> can say that, like, Los, Los, Los Ovarios, like, <laughs> like, what yeah. gave you, what gave you, you know, the courage to say, you know what, I'm starting my practice. <laughs> yeah, it's scary. I, I usually laugh, laugh when I tell people this, or like family that ask, I'm like, I sometimes cry because it gets so overwhelming, but so many things that came to mind, you know, I was, I worked after graduating in, in working towards my licensure in New York. I work at a community mental health clinic. It was such an amazing, amazing, amazing time working with those clients. I got to really be face to face with how governmental systems continue having an oppressive flow, if you would say, even if, even if those governmental staff within those governmental systems want to do their best, want to, you know, help the clients in, I don't know, getting, processing their, their social security disability, for example, or processing their food stamps. Even if, if you come with a good heart and try to help, this, um, those systems are just so 
puzzling to navigate. And there's no, no guidelines sometimes to how you would navigate food stamps, social security disability, insurances, Medicaid, Medicare, you know, it, it just, it gets really complicated. So it was really an amazing experience to learn and to be in connection and in community with people that look like me, you know, or just different communities that, that, that struggle, continue to struggle through, through these systems. And, and then they have to work on their mental health, right? Like, it's just like so mind-blowing. Clearly, I was able to see, and, and people can see that there's so many things that happen externally outside of you that really affect that trauma that you had, that depressive symptoms that come up, the anxiety that comes up, the, the even, even schizophrenic symptoms that come up. It, it just ties in with what has happened to you externally. So... And I say it was an amazing time just because I got to connect with, with those clients, but it, it was a pretty, I had to spend a lot of energy in working through these systems and then being there for my clients. And I had a lot of clients. So our caseloads, usually community mental health clinics, I think because of the nature of Medicaid and Medicare and, and maybe the nature of some some nonprofits, I can say all, oh, there's just a high demand of clients. So each therapist, they have to have a large caseload, a large amount of clients that they see per week. For us, it started with 50 clients a week. And the first week, because I had intern at that community mental health clinic, and then I, I, I worked, I, I was employed. And the first week was death. Because I said, how, how does, how does one survive? Because, you know, back to back sessions. And when we talk about, for example, self care or honoring the, the rest and honoring time for yourself, you know, therapists just don't say that to say it. We, we also feel it and we also have to apply it and, and we deserve to apply that. So you know, in, in, in that environment, having back-to-back sessions, it was really hard. And I worked there for almost five years. So it was, it was a pretty lengthy time. I did it. <laughs> and I, it's, what's interesting is that towards the end of 2019, um, and even a year prior to that, I was already thinking, okay, like I really want to I'm ready and I feel like I have over, I have outgrown this, this role right now. I, I'm, I really do think I'm ready for maybe a leadership role, maybe within the same organization, you know, I was like, how can I make this happen? Thinking of perhaps should I go to a different organization? Like where, where, where can I find myself feeling like there's a, a better balance between providing the services for our communities and also giving giving myself space to be with family and not have to think about all the work that, that I have to do. So where's the balance here? So I was already thinking, thinking, thinking. And then at the beginning of 2020, this is before Corona. <laughs> so at the beginning of 2020, I, I was interested in, in working with another private practice located in, in Brooklyn and I said, okay, you know, I think it's time to 
go from non nonprofit to private practice just to kind of see what's what's out there. So I was to start, I think, by May or June, and then Corona happened. And my 50, 50, 55 sessions a week at the community clinic went to 60, 62, 63, 65 from home, not having an office, from my room, just a lot, a lot more than what had been already. And then, you know, so I was going to start the, the, at the group practice and I let them know and it was a relief. But also such a hard time to, when you separate yourself or when you have to leave something. For me, it was leaving the client. Also leaving what I had known, you know, that I, I knew the rate that I was going to get paid for each session. I knew how to navigate through schedule and schedule different, different sessions. And just, I just knew that to go into something so unknown in the middle of a pandemic. And then also in my personal life, you know, friends being in the hospital, family being worried, grandparents, because my grandparents live here in, 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 in New York, not, not with me, but, but close. So also navigating through our own personal things was pretty hectic, overwhelming, sad. It just very unknown. But I did start at the group practice and I left the community mental clinic in June. And uh, I think a month, two months into working with a group practice, a light bulb went up, went, 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 turned on in my head. And I was like, what am I doing? I have everything that I need to be able to provide maybe what the, the quality of services that I'm already providing and to maybe specialize it and niche it down to the communities that I want to work with. So I was like, what, not, what am I doing? So through conversations with, you know, with my partner and trying to figure out how we can make that happen and also honoring the group practice that I was in because it's, you know, I don't think it's, it's ethical or even kind to just leave clients behind, you know, that it, it, it's horrible. So I think towards the end of 2020, around October, Around that time, we, I, I did have a lot of honest conversations with the group owner, the group practice owner, and I think it's really important to be authentic and, and clear and just honest. And so I let them know that I was thinking of having my own practice, my concerns with the clients, how we can navigate through that. And the behind the scenes of practices and, and all of that, you, you have to understand that since those clients came in through that, through that practice, I can't just take those clients, you know, and it's not that clients belong to anyone because they really don't, but as a provider, talking to the business owner, the owner of this practice, it just, it just does not seem kind and, and ethical to just be like, but I am taking all the clients, right? So a lot of open conversations about how that would look like had to happen. And, uh, and I was very decisive that I was going to open up my practice because sometimes when you want something, but you're a little bit undecisive, it's so easy for others to influence that. So I think there has to be that radical decision of saying, no, 
no, I'm not going to continue another month. I'm going to do this. It's how would that look like for us? You know, and just kind of like owning up to, to what you really want. And at that time, remember, I had already worked at the community medical clinic for four or five years. I'm ready to, to be in a leadership, leadership role. I'm ready to, I'm ready and know that I have what it takes to have my own practice. Also considering that it probably is going to be overwhelming at that point, you know, thinking ahead, but still wanting to do it. And yeah, by November, I, you can say open the doors, you know, because everything's virtual. So it's a little bit hard to say, you know, you know, have you seen the stores when they have the, 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 you got the ribbon, you got the ribbon, the ribbon, yeah, the ribbon, <laughs> you come with the big scissors. Like I had a, you know, I had a dream, but I did that. Uh, virtually. So uh, yeah, we opened the doors in, in, in November. So that's when I started clients directly with me. I worked with a really wonderful person who helped me design and get set, set, set up my website. Monica is her name. She, her website is bsantos.com. She was really, really fantastic in helping. I, I was very intentional or intentional on the people that I wanted to work with me, that I wanted to work with and people that I wanted to help me. So I did search for people of color, people that I, I, I believe to be not only doing what they know to do in their field, but that they are much more than that. And I actually did connect it with another web designer and he was my high school friend, but their rates were very high. And so in, in order to honor what I could pay and then honor that that's their rate, we just couldn't work together. And, you know, along, along the way, I have found that as long as I'm honest and, and honoring other people's rates, because people have to get paid, you will really leave the doors open, even if we don't work together. So, so Veronica helped me with the website and we were able to open in November and yeah, by January, I was already registering my business as it's not Salgado Psychotherapy, but the business legal name is Salgado Mental Health Counseling, PC. We just kept it as Salgado Psychotherapy. That's how it started. And, you know, legally, there's no, no issues with that. So, yeah. And then we started taking clients. I actually did connect also with a business coach. So a lot, a lot happened behind the scenes, you know, a lot of struggles also personally, as you can imagine, doubt that come out, you know, doubts about, can I do this? Do I know what I'm doing? Pressures about, okay, this is, this is my, my own personal income generator. So how, how do we do this? So I'm not behind the scenes. So I did connect with her. With a business coach, she is located in California, I believe, and her name is Zilad Lopez. She was pretty helpful too in in getting getting and understanding the the business aspect of psychotherapy. So I still continue to be in connection with her in that community. So it's just been great and also a little bit overwhelming here and there. Because this this is new. It's new. It's new to me. But my mission and, and my vision is to have a practice that has quality care, that is professional, that looks professional, that is kind, and that is also personable. I did not want it to be 
procedural or robotic and just, I am this therapist, you know, I, I really do believe in, in that approach of decolonized therapy, which really what it means is knowing that the therapist is also a human being, you know, humanizing that therapist. And although I'm, the difference would be that I have that training or that, that knowledge, and I could be that guiding or that guidance for the client. I'm still a human being that goes through things. Congratulations again. I think it's amazing that you got a, a business coach. Definitely. I think, I think people, I guess I just want to highlight, like you have two careers, you have business owner and then you have therapist. Mm -hmm. And I think some of us forget that, right? That the, somebody's running and needs to run the business and, and that is separate from, from the therapy aspect of it. So. Congratulations again. If anybody wants to work with you, where should they go? Do Would it be only like folks in the New York area? Can you give us a little bit of like sort of the audience that you're serving and how they can reach out to you? Yeah. So yes, we are located in New York. So New York state as a whole, and you can reach us through either our Instagram. We go by Salgado Psychotherapy and in, in, through Instagram, you could go on our, on our link and you'll be able to see the website. And in the website, there's other ways that you can get in contact with us. But the good, the good and weird thing that I'd never thought of was Instagram being a good connector. So we sometimes do get, get referrals through Instagram. And initially I had thought it was unethical and I was like, how do we keep confidentiality? But we keep, we keep confidentiality once you are our client. Before that, really things are public. Or if you send us a direct message, obviously we're not going to publicize that, but it's still okay to do that. So I did want to touch a couple other topics with you that I've seen in our community and I'll list them out before, you know, we dive a little deeper. Obviously each of these topics can be a whole hour episode in and of itself. But one of them I wanted to touch on was toxic masculinity within our culture. The other one was the first daughter of immigrant syndrome or like, you know, and the third one was burnout culture that we millennials definitely experience uh, and are combating or succumbing to, I guess is one way to put it. Hola mi gente, thank you for listening to this episode with Josie Salgado. My conversation with Josie was so rich and so full of wisdom, and it was so healing that I decided to split it into two episodes. So the continuation of this conversation will drop tomorrow, and it will be episode 51. So be on the lookout for that. I hope you enjoy it. Are you a small business looking to expand your digital footprint? Are you a small business looking to reach more of the Peruvian diaspora in the United States? Consider sponsoring an episode of Peruvians of USA. Peruvians of USA has launched its first sponsorship program. If you're interested, please visit peruviansofusa.com slash sponsors or send us a message on Instagram. Thank you for listening to Peruvians of USA. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and review an Apple podcast. It lets other Peruvians find the show. If you want to hear more from me, you can follow me on Instagram at Peruvians of USA. I'm looking forward to connecting with you there. All right, talk to you soon. Ciao.